0: Before I pray tonight, um, as Tiffany was leading us in communion, and as Jess was leading us uh, into that song, there was just this over, overriding um, kind of sense in my heart that the love of Jesus is so great, and there is nothing but the blood of Jesus, and yet there are so many things that I think we, um, I think we can, we can be upset with people, or we can be frustrated with jobs, or we can be um, angry with certain circumstances in our life, but I think sometimes that we're frustrated with those people, or we're frustrated with jobs, or we're angry with situations, because we're asking those people, or those jobs, or those situations to do things that only Jesus can do. Um, I think there's this deeper sense that, that there's something in us that wants to be validated, something in us that wants to be loved, something in us that wants to feel these things, and I think with the world that we live in, it's so easy to just put these expectations and to to put them on other people and think they're supposed to love me like this or this job is supposed to fill something in my heart or my circumstances are supposed to be a certain way. And the reality of what we just did in communion and what we just sang about in that song is that there's nothing that can do what Jesus can do. And so tonight as we pray, would you just take a moment with me and um, would you just join me in praying? And if there's anything in your life that you're trying to squeeze out of it, what can only be squeezed out of Jesus, would you just let it go right now? Just acknowledge it and say, you know what? I've been asking things of that person. I've been asking things of that situation. I've been asking things of this job or uh, these efforts of mine that the truth is what needs to be done in my heart can only be done by Jesus. Just give that thing a name, give it a face, give it an identity, call it what it is and say, just stop it. Stop asking other things and other people to be Jesus. Lord, we confess. We confess in this space that it's really easy to to try to squeeze life out of places where there just is not life. There's not the life that you give us. And um, I think the importance of us knowing your love and to be overwhelmed with it is so that we can see all those other things in perspective too, so that we can treat people rightly, so that we can have the right... The right clarity about our jobs so that we can walk through situations with an even keel because we already know how much we're loved. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress that in our hearts, sink that into our minds. Lord, let us let that just be a part of everything of who we are right now. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. As you're grabbing a seat tonight, uh, I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles out and open them up to Leviticus, uh, chapter 23. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to mention, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't here on Tuesday night for our women's event because I'm not a woman. Um, although that didn't stop Alex Lesler from being here. So uh, he, was, he was here, but uh, he's our adult ministries pastor, so it made sense. But uh, I watched online, and uh, I just—I was so excited. I was at my house, sitting on the couch, and I was just live streaming the, the women's event. And it was just so amazing and so cool. And uh, for those of you that were here, you know it was just a great, great time together. It got me really excited for the month of June because we're doing an event for guys in the month of June. Uh, um, The speakers aren't that great. It's going to be myself and Keith Jenkins. Uh, We're going to be the two speakers, so it's not as good as the women's event, but I think we can get through with that. So, um, guys, we're going to have more information on that, but I think it'll be a similar really cool time for for men uh, next month. But we are studying the book of Leviticus, as as Tiffany mentioned earlier, and if you've been with us for any portion of this series, um, and I know a lot of you have, then you know that this book is actually broken into a series of sections. For example, the first Five chapters are, are five individual offerings or sacrifices that God gave the people of Israel that when they wanted to draw near to God, he said, here's five different ways that you can draw near to me. And so the book was in this sort of section that each offering, each sacrifice was a way that they could draw near to God. And what we learned in that process through this, through this study is that all of those sacrifices and all of those offerings actually pointed to something in the future. And and what we discovered in those first five chapters is that those five things all pointed to the person of Jesus, which was a really beautiful thing that the people even then didn't understand was going on. So, um, So there was this incredible sense of all of this stuff is pointing in one direction. So last week, we started another section in Leviticus in chapter 23, and chapter 23, this section is a section that is dedicated to understanding feasts, certain feasts that would go on. And the point, as we discovered last week with these feasts, is to help the people of Israel synchronize their life with the life of God. That's basically why they were doing this. There was a rhythm, there was a a synchronicity that was being longed for, and these feasts help people align their lives to the life of God, to to integrate themselves into the story of God and what what God is doing, what God is working in the world. So they're establishing rhythms and synchronizing with God. They're becoming new people who are not like other people, and this is new, and this is fresh, especially when these feasts, um, when you see what these feasts mean for us today. This is brand new stuff. So today I want to unpack chapter 23 a little bit further, and uh, I'm just going to say this. You might want to take notes. Uh, I ran into one of my friends out in the hallway before the service, and I said, I hope you brought your pen and paper with you because we're going to burn through some notes tonight. In fact... um, Every now and then, you're going to run into the nutty professor version of Brad Williams. I'm just going to warn you, all right? When I totally geek out um, at stuff that we see in the Bible, and I'm just going to tell you in advance, tonight is going to be wild. Um, there's going to be lots of numbers. There's going to be lots of math. There's going to be lots of crazy signs. Um, but I think you're going to, when you see what's in Leviticus chapter 23, I just think it's going to be one of those moments like, I can't believe that this is in the Bible. Like, this is so amazingly cool. So, um, if you want to take notes, I just encourage this. First, it's important to know that all of the feasts in Leviticus chapter 23 revolve around or are associated with the harvest season. And the the feasts are divided into two sections. And those two sections happen with the spring harvest that happens every year and the fall harvest that happens every year. Um, In fact, if you open your Bible to Leviticus 23, you see the first section starts in verse 4, and it introduces the Feast of the Passover. That's verse 4. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's verse 6. Then there's the Feast of first fruits. That's verse 9. Then there's the Feast of Weeks, or what's also called the Feast of Pentecost. And that's verse 15. All of those are associated with the spring harvest. When the harvest happened during the springtime, those were the festivals that were celebrated in alignment with the spring harvest. Then in the fall, you would come back and you would celebrate the fall feast that correspond with the fall harvest. And that section starts with verse 23. The first one is the feast of trumpets. Then there's the day of atonement in verse 26. Then the feast of tabernacles in verse 33. That's the fall harvest. So you have the spring harvest, you have these four festivals, then you have the the fall harvest and you have these three festivals, Okay. Now, some scholars believe that chapter 23 of Leviticus is one of the most important, most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible, and you're about to see why. Um, because it, un- it unveils this amazing, intricate plan that God has for humanity. There, there is this symbolism, and there is this theme, and you're gonna see that all of these things are pointing to something else that is going on. Uh, I really think, when we're done today, and I already said this, when you're done, I- I've been doing this all day, I've geeked out, I've already told like 10 people this sermon today because I just get so excited about it. I've been like, wait till you see what we're talking about tonight, but... We have these feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, trumpets, atonement, tabernacle. And when we were talking about this last week, the same chapter, we saw that there was a a word associated with these festivals and it's the Hebrew word moed. And that literally means that there's an appointed time. It's like when you're going to meet someone, you put it on your calendar, it is a moed. I have an appointment to do this thing. So these feasts are moeds. They are rhythms that are an integrated part of the Hebrew calendar. But then there's this other Hebrew word that's also used to describe all of these specific feasts, just like the word moed, and this is an incredibly beautiful and meaningful word. It's the word mikra, and, and, and the word mikra. in fact, say that one with me. Just say mikra. Mikra is sprinkled throughout this same chapter. In fact, it's translated in our English Bible most often as convocation, and so if you were with us last week and we were reading through all of these different feasts, you kept noticing call a holy convocation. That is a holy mikrah. But here's what's interesting about the word mikrah. If you look at the word just a little bit closer, you discover that another way that this word was used by the ancient Hebrews was, it's, and it's translated this way, is, is the word rehearsal. So mikrah means a rehearsal so mikrah is a rehearsal and so the conclusion that we can draw because we see this being repeated over and over and over again is that God is giving the Hebrew people some kind of rehearsal that they're walking through, that points to things to come. This is a mikrah, this is a rehearsal. This is the thing you do before the thing that actually happens. So these appointed feasts are pointed to something. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 has everything to do with the Passover, which is the first festival. This first mikra is Passover. And, and Passover comes from the verses that we see in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 3. And listen to this. It says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. So every tenth day of this month, You take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. So you're inspecting it, right? It's a male, year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." So I want you to notice this, and this is where you're going to start writing some things down. The Passover, it says, happens on the 14th day of the first month. But notice in the text that the lamb comes into the household for inspection on the 10th day of the month, and then it's sacrificed on the 14th day, which means that the lamb is in the house for four days, right? You can do the math, 14 minus 10 is... Four, there we go, we all got it. So then we, then we learn after that, so four days, the, the lamb is in the house, then it's sacrificed, and then we learn that the lamb is sacrificed at twilight. That's what it says in our English Bibles. Twilight is a Hebrew phrase that means between the evenings. So the day for a Hebrew person was divided into quarters, four sections. There was 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., 9 a.m. to noon, noon to three, and then 3 p.m. to six to six. That's the way it was broken down. So between the evenings would have been at 3 p.m. So twilight, when it says this, the lamb is being sacrificed at 3 p.m. So the lamb spends four days in the house and is sacrificed at 3 p.m. You want to hold on to this. Are Are you with me so far though? Are you kind of staying with me so far? It's going to get wackier. I'm just warning you up front. Now look at verse 31 of Exodus chapter 12. The people are to wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house and they do that. And then the Passover event takes place, and God brings judgment on the people who have rejected him, the people of Egypt. And then in verse 31, Pharaoh comes to Moses and Aaron, and he says this, verse 31, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. So the Jewish day begins at nightfall. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, is when the Israelites leave Egypt, and it's the 15th day. So Israel leaves Egypt on the 15th day, right? Passover on the 14th day, they leave on the 15th day. As it turns out, the festivals and feasts in Leviticus chapter 23, that corresponds with the feast of unleavened bread. So we have Passover on the 14th day, unleavened bread on the 15th day. That's when the people leave Egypt. And now... They journey three days to the Red Sea. Three days of this process. That brings us to Exodus chapter 14, verse 29. It's one of the most iconic stories in all the Bible, right? The parting of the Red Sea. And here's what we read in verse 29. It says, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Here's what you have to understand. After the three days that brought them to the Red Sea... After this parting, after they cross the other side, it's only after they cross this, after three days, that they're actually free. When the people were fleeing Egypt, as long as Pharaoh was still alive, they weren't really free. They were still being chased down by their past, right? Pharaoh still owned them in some sense. So they are released from slavery, truly released from slavery on the 18th day. Roughly three days after the 15th day. So we've had a 14th day, a 15th day, and an 18th day. Then you move to Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus 19 begins with a little detail that even if you've seen it before by itself, it wouldn't wouldn't seem like that big of a deal. And you might say, why does God give these little needless details in the Bible? Why do we have all these these little notes? I promise you, by the way, this is going somewhere. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. The third moon is translated as the third month, which, by the way, corresponds with the feast. Of weeks so we have the first day of the third month is the feast of weeks and if you look at Exodus 19 and 20 you'll see that it's where God gives the Ten Commandments it's the symbol of grace and mercy we talked about this last week it's where God says I rescued you and, and you didn't do anything to deserve this You didn't earn this it's out of my mercy it's out of my grace and now I'm gonna show you how I want you to live I'm gonna give you the Ten Commandments so 50 days after Passover is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I know right now you're probably thinking, has he finally lost it? Has like COVID gotten to his brain or something like this? It's a really good question, but the better question is this. What does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? What what is the connection with all of these days and these feasts all lining up with the events of the Exodus? What does it have to do with Leviticus? What does it mean? If you go to the book of Hosea, chapter 6, there's an obscure prophecy found in the book of Hosea that talks about the coming Messiah. Um, Remember, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus and the whole New Testament is about Jesus. It all points to him. And so Hosea is pointing to Jesus. Hosea, chapter 6, he's looking forward to the coming Messiah, the coming Savior. And he makes this fascinating prophecy about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. But when this is written... Jesus has not yet come. So, so look at this. In verse 3 of Hosea chapter 6, it says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Now, if you heard this, you'd scratch your head and we'd say this in our culture. We'd say, well, what in the world is he talking about, the latter and the former rain? What is he describing here? He's talking about the coming Messiah being like the former and the latter rains. But what are the former and latter rains? What does this have to do with? Well, you have to have rain in order to have a harvest, right? And you have to have a harvest in order to have a mikra, a feast, So the former rains are the rains that precede the spring harvest. And the latter rains are the rains that preceded the fall harvest. And what Hosea is saying is, when the Savior comes, he's going to come like the former rains. And then he's going to come like the latter rains. So according to Hosea, how many times would the Messiah come? Two times, right? The former and the latter, that's twice, right? This is really interesting, right? The plot's getting a little bit thicker, probably a little bit more confusing, but I promise you it's gonna make sense. If Hosea says that Jesus' coming aligns with the rains and the harvest and the feasts correspond to the harvest, then that means that the feasts in Leviticus chapter 23 probably are showing us something about Jesus, Right? So you go to the New Testament and you go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 gives all sorts of details that if you're a church person, you've probably read these details a time or two, and you've never really thought much about them. But it says this, verse 1 of John chapter 12. Listen to the detail. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So why does John tell us that it's six days before the Passover? Or how about this, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So how many days before Passover does this happen that the crowd is gathering? It's five, right? And then on the fifth day, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, which, by the way, is one of the most well-documented events in history, the triumphal entry. Then you look and say, well, how many days did Jesus stay in the city? How many days did Jesus stay there? Jesus spends... Four days in the house, if you will. And during his four days, what's happening to him? He's examined, he's questioned, he's questioned by religious leaders before the Sanhedrin, he's brought before Pilate, he's inspected by the people and the Romans. So Jesus spends four days in Jerusalem. Then if you look at Mark chapter 15, verse 25, the the dots all start connecting. It tells us exactly when he was crucified. Verse 25 says it was the third hour when they crucified him. That would be 3 p.m. So when was the lamb supposed to be sacrificed in Exodus chapter 12? 3 p.m., do you see a trend? Way back in Exodus chapter 12, the people had the lamb in their home inspecting it for four days. And for four days, after four days, at 3 p.m., they sacrifice. Notice Mark chapter 15, verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Jesus is buried. And how many days was Jesus buried? Well, Mark 16, verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. Verse 5 says, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He is not here. So we discover that Jesus was buried for three Days, how many days were the people of Israel exiting their slavery in Egypt until they got past the Red Sea? It was three days. So Jesus spends four days in the temple area. He's crucified at 3 p.m. and he's buried for three days. The slavery has not yet ended until he rises from the dead. And every single bit of this follows the feast calendar. Everything that Jesus is, it's happening to him in his life is following what we read about in Leviticus chapter 23. It's happening in according, according with, accordance with or alignment to these feasts because Hosea says when he comes the first time, it's going to be like the spring rains. So we still have one more feast, right? We still have the fourth one that's associated with the spring festivals. Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice this. Remember when God gave the Ten Commandments on on Mount Sinai, there was fire and, and there was wind and everything shook, right? And God made himself known in that moment, right? Go back to the feasts. On the 50th day after Passover, we have the Feast of Weeks in Leviticus. It's 50 days after. It's also known as the feast of pentecost acts chapter 2 in alignment with the feast of weeks pentecost happens 50 days after the resurrection of jesus in verse one of chapter two, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Does God seem to be following the feasts? Is he staying on schedule? <laughs> he is, isn't he? Here's the question where's Jesus when this happens? He's ascended, right? He's ascended into heaven. He's gone. So if all of the spring feasts deal with Jesus' first coming, then what does that say about the fall feasts? They are speaking to his second coming. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we read this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. What's the point of this? Jesus' return will be inaugurated with the blowing of what instrument? A trumpet, right? Back in Leviticus 23, what is the first of the fall feasts? It is the feast of the trumpets. And what follows the feast of trumpets? The day of atonement. We looked at the day of atonement on Easter. Um, This is where you have a goat that's brought in. And all of our sins are placed on the goat. And then the, sa- the scapegoat is sent away, sent into the wilderness. And John 19 says that Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat that takes away our sins. But notice what Matthew 25 says about Jesus' return. He says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the, s- the sheep. I just said shepherates. That's something a shepherd does, by the way. It's unique to them. We separate, a shepherd shepherds. That's what they do. But he separates the sheep from the goats. So we have sheep and we have goats. The sheep are those who have called on the name of Jesus. The goats are those who refused him. And what happens to them? The sheep are with Jesus and the goats, they are sent away into the wilderness, Right? Then we have one final feast in Leviticus chapter 23. We have the Feast of the Tabernacles or what's called the Feast of Tents because tabernacle actually means a tent. The Feast of the Tabernacles I think would have been my, would have been my favorite one. It's the last of the fall feast and it was like a huge party. And the people would would, they would set up these huge tents, and they would live in these tents for this festival. Basically, they went camping. It was like a it was like a family camp, is what it was. They went camping together, and it was this reminder of their time in the wilderness with God. And there'd be music, and there'd be food, and there'd be celebration. But I want you to notice the language in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 verse three says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's in the tabernacle. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. All of the language is language that points to the feast of tabernacles. So now some questions. Questions? Have the spring feasts happened yet? Yes, right. Have the fall feasts happened yet? As far as we know, not yet, right. So that means what season are we in? If we're not in, if we're, if spring's already happened, <laughs> and fall is yet to come, we're in summer, <laughs> right? Which just has special meaning for us living in the northwest, right? But what happens in the summer? Well, there's also a summer harvest. So Matthew chapter nine, Jesus is preaching and he's going from town to town and he heals a paralytic and he uh, he calls Matthew to follow him in that passage. Um, he's questioned about fasting and whether or not his disciples fast like the Pharisees. He heals a blind man. He heals a mute person. And then we get to verse thirty-five. And it says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees the crowd, and they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're desperate for healing. They're desperate for truth. They're desperate for some answer to life's problem. That's what he sees. And, and you and I know, as well as Jesus did as he was looking at them, that he is truly the only answer for what they're longing for. Just like we talked about earlier, he is the answer, right? But then Jesus mixes the metaphor, and it's a really strange thing. He leaves and departs from the shepherd theme, and instead he says this, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest so the dominant metaphor was sheep and shepherd but then Jesus doesn't keep with that he sees this crowd and he says to his disciples don't you see the harvest he's referring to this summer harvest so all my life, I've listened to preachers preach about these words, and I've often wondered, like, what is Jesus talking about? Why does he use the harvest? It's because Jesus is using the language of the feasts, right? Don't, don't you see, like, all the people that you work among that are hurting, all the people that have questions about where they're going to find meaning, all the classmates that you know are struggling to get by, he says the harvest is ready. Do you see all these people, the people you live with and work with, the people that are in your family, all of these people, they were created to know God. He created them to know God. And you have the answer. He's looking at the disciples, but he's also looking at us, and he's saying, listen, you're living between the spring and the fall. You're living in the summer harvest, and you have the answer And so Jesus says, the harvest is ready. We're in the middle of summer. And according to this, according to what Jesus is saying, you and I have a role to play in the summer harvest. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We've been given the truth that changes the texture of a human heart. We've been given given this truth that, that transforms the stories of real people. So as a disciple of Jesus, God says, I can use you. I can... I can use people who are interested in being some light in a dark world. I can use some workers for the harvest. So God gives us a role to play. And that's the point of all of this. The feasts of the spring have taken place. The fall is to come. But now in the middle, you have something of meaning that your life is about. Your life has purpose. You and I, we sit in the now. We sit in this moment where Jesus looks out and says, do you see the harvest and how ripe it is. So one final, somewhat off topic, but really interesting, crazy thing that you need to know. The first sentence, some of you already know this. A woman's um, reproductive cycle, the entire reproductive cycle to, to make a child lasts roughly 280 days. But if you were to measure from her last cycle, you would discover that a woman produces an egg on the 14th day. Remember the first day that we mentioned at the beginning of this message? It's the 14th day. It's called ovulation. That egg is just an egg unless it's fertilized in the next 24 hours, which means it has to be fertilized by the end of the 15th day. If it's been fertilized in a normal cycle, it will travel and implant itself in a woman's uterus, and only then will new life spring forth. And this happens sometime between the second and the sixth day. But now, you don't know what you have at this point. You don't see a fully formed fetus until, check this out, the first day of the third month. And the fetus is gonna grow and mature, but there aren't any drastic changes until the first day of the seventh month, which happens to align with the the first of the fall feast. So the first significant moments I just mentioned align with the timing of the spring feast. And then the first day of the fall feast, the the, the, the feast of trumpets, there's a change that happens in a fetus. What happens in a fetus on that day? The fetus gains the ability to hear maybe a trumpet. That fetus growing inside its mother still uses its mother's oxygen supply. So the fetus has to be able to process its mother's oxygen in its own blood system and that happens, it reaches its fulfillment on the 10th day of the 7th month and that aligns with the atonement. So when the blood sacrifice gave you new life, when a child is in a woman's womb, that is the moment that it has its own new life. By the way, one more thing needs to happen before it can live on its own. Uh, If you study a chart on how a fetus fetus develops, it's between the 18th and 23rd day of the seventh month that it develops lungs and can breathe on its own. And that aligns with the feast of the tabernacles when God is breathed in and he is present with his people, God dwelling with us. Did God thousands of years ago... (laughs) tell a ragtag group of slaves this incredibly medically accurate chart outlining the development of human life. If you study the feast to, to to these moments, they are a picture of human life, which means if you're here today and you're living and you're breathing, in the creation of you, you have already fulfilled the feast, haven't you? You've already moved through this process. So let me just ask you this tonight. Because I told you it's going to be a weird one. I already gave my disclaimer. But let me ask you this. Do you think God is involved with his creation? Does he know what he's doing? And do you get this sense? I mean, can you even stop for a moment and, 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 and not see that we are a part of something massive that's going on. There is a story that has been being told and we are living amidst this story. If that's true, and I think the answer is yes, the text seems to point to this, then this has real-life living applications for us. For for some of us, we're white-knuckling our way through life. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but when I see the God of the universe working so intricately in all these details, seeing that thousands of years, all of these things kind of work together and point together, there's a part of me that just sits back and thinks, and I'm really worried about what? I just think there's this deep sense of, I think I can trust what I believe, amen? For some of us, I think we've just been white knuckling, we're holding on so tight, we're so worried about everything. And I look at this stuff that God's been doing for ages, and it just lets me just loosen my grip and go, okay... I think I can let you be God. And for others of us, we've been going alone in this. And I think you look at this and what Jesus is doing is he's inviting you to make your life make sense. He's inviting you to say, do you want your life to fit into a grand story? Do you want your life to make more sense than the sense you're making of it? And if if that's the case, it's time for you to say yes to Jesus. That's what this is saying. Amen? Would you stand with me? So tonight, let me offer this to you. May the opening of your eyes to the intricacies of God's plan allow you to trust him more deeply. And may you see your place in this beautiful tapestry that God is weaving from the beginning of time until the future fall rains, Amen. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with a crazy pastor tonight. We'll see you guys uh, hopefully next Thursday. If not, we'll see you Sunday. Have an amazing week. Feel free to hang out. Hey, as you grab your communion tonight, there's disposals or there's places to throw that away outside so our ushers don't have to clean them up. If you'll throw them in the trash cans, that'd be great. And we'll see you guys later. Have a great evening.